from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Lightning round. We are in the house tonight with a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. Welcome to everyone from all points far away, from as far away as the Philippines to the UK, Canada, Toronto, Edmonton, all over, as well as the United States. It's great to have you here. Uh, Casey, uh, my one producer is in the booth waving to you all. You can't see her, but I can, so I'm waving on her behalf. And then right next to me, I've got Rob, the master tactician. What say ye? I'm doing very well, Sven. And apropos of the season, the day in which we're recording this, let's light this candle. Let's light this candle. I like it. Well, we're taking questions here, and uh, we are uh, live Taking your questions, diving into it. And I'm starting out with the first one here from Mace. And Mace says, I want to ask you to elaborate on when we're attracting new people into our lives, how do we get better at being able to detect the difference between someone who's actively and uh, inauthentically mirroring our energy versus showing up as their natural selves? In other words, how do, Mace is asking, how do we detect the shit? How do we know? And the answer to that is, the more you're in tune to your own shit, the more you're getting out your own shit, the more uh, you're, you become in tune to your own voice and you be able to detect those pings, that ping on the sonar, you know, in those submarine movies and shit, ping. The more, because what happens is all the shit from our past, all the pain, fears, and bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself, they corrupt, they create feelings inside, inside of you, anxiety inside of you. And those all, you get stirred up with all your feelings and then you can't operate from your source. You can't detect when something just feels off. And very often when we're in relationships, we don't want to fucking listen when something feels off. It's like, oh, fuck it. It feels so good. I want this relationship. Fuck it. Fuck it. Come on. I want it. And we ignore the ping, but that ping is talking. And we have to stop and we have to address it because little pings become big pings and big pings become big problems. So the answer is getting out more and more of your shit, making it your daily discipline or your weekly discipline to be saying, what's the shit going on inside of me that I need to get out this week or today so that I'm more in tune to my authentic self? Because when you're in tune with your authentic self, you pick up on that shit. All right, next person. How do you break away from a toxic person when everything is together, you know, like stuff? Well, separate it out. How do you break away from a toxic person? Separate it out. And you've got to ask yourself the question, you know, if they go all douchey and say, no, I'm not giving you anything. This is all my stuff. You've got to ask yourself the question, could I live without getting that stuff back? In other words, if they're going to make the reacquisition of your stuff or the separation of you guys' stuff hard, at what point do you say, you know what, just fuck it. I don't even care. Because it could be that they're holding on to the stuff as a way to hurt you, as a way to make your life difficult, as a way to keep you around, as a way to inflict pain on you. So you may have to reach a point where it's like, you know what, just keep the stuff. I just so want to get the fuck away from you. Next question. All right. What do I do if I have a mom that isn't willing to do work like this? Well, I'm assuming you mean do the work of getting the pain out so that you guys can have a relationship and so forth. And so you're wondering, well, what the hell do I do if my mom won't do it? The mere fact that you want your mom to do it says you still want something from your mom. You want a relationship with your mom. 
And it's perfectly natural. There's nothing wrong with wanting that. But as long as I want something from someone, they have power over me. They have the power to not give it to me. They have the power to make me miserable. They have the power to make me jump through their hoops. Imagine someone, I'm six foot four, all right? And I can jump, but not hugely high. So if there's somebody who's like seven foot two and they're holding in their hand above their head a $100 bill, and I want that $100 bill, I may jump and jump and jump and jump, but I'm not gonna reach that $100 bill. And they'll say, well, now, next time you jump, do two somersaults and four burpees. And I'll be like, all right, all right, I really want that $100 bill. And you become a fucking tool. This person has power over me because I they have something I want. Well, your mom has something you want, and that is you want a relationship with her. And I'm betting, if you were to ask yourself the question, well, why do I want a relationship with my mom? I'm betting the answer would be because then I could finally get that love or that acceptance or that security I've always wanted from her. I could get that you know family sort of parental love that I've never gotten. Right, so she still has something you want. And the truth is, if someone doesn't want to do the work or if they're using that power they have over you, to make you jump through hoops or to make you feel miserable, you're not dealing with an honorable person. And the truth is, you won't be fully free until you no longer want that from your mother. And that's a hard day when we realize, you know, I'm just gonna make up an age. Let's say you're 35 years old, Ted and May, and your mom's not willing to do the work. You wrote, what do I do if my mom isn't willing to do the work like this to clear out the crud so that we can have a fucking relationship? You may have to reach the point where you let go of ever wanting that's those good feelings and that love from your mom. And that's a hard day to come to, but it's also a liberating day because then you can finally begin to live your life your way. Whereas now to a large degree, you're living your life trying to win her approval or at the very least avoid her criticism. You're jumping through whatever hoop she has. You're living up to her expectations. You're taking on her family values. You're buying into the family myth system. You're doing whatever you have to do to because you're still trying to get something from your mom. And this is a very normal thing. We've all been through it, particularly as children. We're all just trying to get our love cup filled. And when you can't get it filled, it's like, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I'll put up with anything. I'll do anything because you so want that parental love until the day comes where you realize, well, shit, I'm 35. I have a 35-year pattern of behavior that mom's never going to fucking meet my needs. And maybe it's time I just let go because she. this is bullshit and it sucks and I'm being made to jump through all these crappy hoops. All right, next question. Is it acceptable for husband to take female coworker for dinner alone and share two bottles of wine? Two people, two bottles of wine. Uh, wow. Uh, well, really, in a way, you're asking the wrong question or <laughs> you're asking the wrong person. You ask the question, is it acceptable for a husband to take female coworker to dinner alone and share two bottles of wine? Uh, my question to you is, is it acceptable to you? Because the bottom line is that's all that matters. Does it feel good to you or does it feel shitty? And this really sucks and this is not okay. Because in the end, you wouldn't even be asking that question unless it sucked and you didn't think it's okay. So the question becomes, why aren't you standing up and saying this is not okay? And I'm betting it's because your husband is standing up even taller and saying it is okay. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing going on. But the bottom line is I don't like it. This is not okay. I didn't sign up for this shit. And let me ask you this. If the roles were reversed, would he be okay with it? More importantly, let me ask you this. You ask the question, Chuckoff2 says, is it acceptable for husband to take female coworker for dinner alone and share two bottles of wine? Let me ask you this. Did he flat out tell you in advance that that's what he was going to do? Or did he only tell you after the fact? Or did he not tell you at all, but you found out? Where I'm going with this is, if there's any measure of deception involved, he's up to something. 
In fact, I would offer, even if there isn't deception involved, if a female coworker for out for dinner alone, two bottles of wine, <sighs> that's just, honestly, it's a sketchy one. And the bottom line is it doesn't feel good to you. And you need to stand up and say, I need this to not happen. Stand up for what you believe. What I think it's okay, I'm 55, my partner that I'm in a relationship with uh, is, you know, she runs a company and if she needs to go have dinner with someone who's, you know, she's bargaining a deal with or something like that, fucking go for it. Two bottles of wine. No, that's not a business dinner. I'm sorry. That's just not a fucking business dinner. And the fact that it's alone and female, it just, I don't know. It just reeks to me like something's fucking going on. All right. Next question. After being taken advantage of, how do you not go overboard trying to gain more power? Well, the mere fact that you're trying to gain more power is likely because you're trying to insulate yourself from being taken advantage of again. So let me ask you this. What's the downside of gaining more power in a relationship? How is that a bad thing? Are you hurting the other person? Well, that's not okay, but it's also not okay for them to hurt you. And it sounds like you gaining more power is what you need in order to feel safe in this relationship. And so I guess I would have to ask a follow-up question. What would going overboard look like? What are we even talking about as far as gaining more power? But the bottom line is when you've been taken advantage of, what that means is you've trusted someone and they've hurt you. And that doesn't mean we stop trusting. It means we flush out the pain from being hurt. But the only way you can really uh, have connection in life is willingness to be vulnerable. But we take we tend to take it slower as we age after we've been hurt a few times. And so we retain some power. We take our time in the being vulnerable and in opening up. And we watch to make sure they're sort of matching it one-to-one. That when I open up, they open up and, and so forth, roughly speaking. Because if the other person isn't opening up or if things feel off, that sort of ping on the sonar, something feels off, that's where you just got to slow it down. But it's so easy to get swept up on our emotions and ignore the pings or to just throw total caution to the wind and become immediately vulnerable right away. And you can do that if you want. There's nothing inherently wrong with it, but you're making yourself vulnerable to a whole lot of potential pain by throwing yourself in rather than just taking your time. What's the fucking hurry? All right, next question. If a friend acted selfishly and has distanced, I have very life-changing info. Do I just let it go? Um, I'm assuming you mean life-changing info about yourself. If you had life-changing info about them, like you just discovered they had cancer or something and they don't know it, yeah, you might want to share that with them. Uh, But if a friend has acted selfishly and has distanced, I have very life-changing info. Do I just let it go? Yeah, you let it go. Because the mere fact that you're considered, somebody was selfish and distanced themselves from you. They're basically saying, fuck you. Okay. And you, whether it's life-changing info or not, you're considering reaching out to them because you miss them. And even if it is life-changing info, why are you wanting to share it with them? I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just curious, what's the real reason you want to share it with them? Isn't it because you want them to say, oh, wow, I'm so sorry, or wow, congratulations. In other words, you're wanting something from them. Well, the mere fact that they've already been selfish and distanced themselves from you indicates that they have no interest in giving something to you. They're selfish. They want to receive from you. So even if you have life-changing info, if you go to that person and share it, they're not going to give you what you want. They've already indicated they're selfish. So yeah, in this case, you let it go, which means you got to give yourself permission to grieve the loss of this relationship. Because you're still clearly wanting to reach out. But as you grieve the loss of the relationship more, it'll be easier to let go. And it's hard to let go of friendships. 
All right. How to deal with father's death after we had a difficult, almost toxic relationship? Well, the merest fact that you're saying deal with it says that you have strong feelings, potentially feelings of love, potentially feelings of anger, uh, if and pain, if there was a toxic relationship or almost toxic relationship and it was difficult, just do what we do in all cases of grief or loss of love is you just start flushing out all of those feelings in your journaling. Get a pad of paper and a pen and start writing it out. Write a letter to your deceased father. Hey, hey, asshole, you know, open up however you want or gosh, I miss you so much. The feelings of love, the feelings of hate, the feelings of anger, the feelings of sadness, just keep flushing it out. The way we deal with it, what we're really dealing with it is we have memories and we have thoughts that have emotional charges attached to them. And the way we deal with it, the way we bring closure, to use that cliche word, the way we finally are able to move on with our life and not have it nipping at our, nipping at our heels is we decharge those memories. We decharge those thoughts that we have inside of us. And so we have to keep flushing it out. All right. I hate to admit it. I'm having a hard time getting into your book. Maybe I'm being lazy or not ready. (laughs) That's a fair fucking question. And that's a fair fucking statement. Or maybe my book just sucks. That could be, never know. Um, It's an international bestseller, but you know, it's not right for everybody. That's the bottom line. Just like my counseling isn't right for everybody. It's that's okay. But the question I would ask you GQ is if you said, you know, you're having a hard time getting into the book and the book is there's a hole in my love cup and I wrote it. It's 95% of my counseling method in one book. All right. So that people can heal themselves on their own rather than forever trying to find a good therapist who pushes them and takes them deep and all this stuff. But if you're having problems, problems getting into it, my question would be, what's the hardest part? What's the part you're not connecting with? I've had some people say, you know, Sven, I got through chapter one and I had to put your fucking book down. It just brought up too much shit. Or Sven, you know what? You're, you have these journaling exercises in the book, but I don't like journaling. I don't like writing things. And to which I respond, is it you don't like writing things or is it there are certain things you don't like writing about, certain things you don't want to touch? And very often, and it's just may not be the case for, for my book. It could just be GQ chick that my book just doesn't resonate with you. And that's okay. That's okay. Or that it's just not time. That could be too. Or it could be that the stuff that's contained in the book what it's challenging you to look at and what it's challenging you to feel, you don't want to touch. And I get this with people with me in counseling and with the book and with my do-it-yourself video courses and even with this podcast. I've had people reach out and say, hey, I don't want to listen. I don't want to deal with that heavy shit. It just stirs up too much inside of me. To which my response is the whole goal is to stir it up. The whole goal is to stir it up and flush it out because it's in there and it's corrupting you from in the inside. And your entire life is compensation for all of those feelings that you've had uh, your entire life. So I'd say set it aside for now, but in your own personal journaling or in your therapy with your therapist, ask yourself, what really is it? Is it fear? Is there something about that book that I'm uh, terrified of and don't want to touch? Well, then you can go into your fears and then in flushing those out, and then you'll be able to approach uh, the book itself. Because the truth is you wouldn't have even bought the book in the first place unless there was pain inside of you and fears inside of you and stuff inside of you that you wanted to heal. And so getting out whatever blockages you may have to doing that healing uh, may uh, enable you to sort of get further into the book. All right. Is it something wrong with me if I want to spend Christmas alone? My mom and dad passed and siblings. Um, Is it wrong to want to spend Christmas alone? (laughs) My answer is a resounding no. There's nothing wrong with that. There are no rules on how a person spends their holidays be it Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa 
or solstice. There are no, there are no rules. You spend it your way. And my question to you would be, why are you even asking that question? Do you feel some, it, I'm guessing you feel some guilt over it or uh, that you're being pressured by someone to spend holidays with them, but you really don't want to. And what I would encourage you to do is just flush out your feelings of guilt or uh, obligation or if someone's putting you down or making you feel bad for it. But no, nothing wrong with wanting to spend the holidays alone. In fact, it can be tremendously, I spent a few alone myself. I did in the years that I was uh, living on the street, ministering to the homeless, literally sleeping on concrete every night for two and a half years. I spent a couple of holidays alone and it was just peaceful for me. I know that sounds insane, but it was peaceful. It was quiet. It was pleasant. And in a way I felt more in communion with life uh, and the stars and sky and nature and then I was, I was surrounded by people sometimes. That being said, this year is a year of being with people. We'll be right back with more Badass Counseling right after this. My wife pushed me to watch this guy's TikTok videos, so I finally caved in and holy crap, blew me away. I started watching more and every time he opens his mouth, I get blown away in a whole new way. So I finally bought his book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, to say I got an ass kicking is an understatement. Much needed. It was like having my own personal tough therapist who just gets it. So go do yourself a favor. Get There's a Hole in My Love Cup. It's powerful stuff. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. Welcome back to the lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. It's great to have everyone in the house from all points, north, south, east, west. It's kind of a beautiful day and a great day to be alive. Um, so we're in it, taking people's questions, struggling with the deep, dark, ugly stuff. Here we go. Buttercup asks the question, any tips on maintaining a healthy and happy relationship after having a baby? Yes, yes. Uh, first of all, this is actually the exact right question you should be asking after having a baby. And uh, apart from, you know, all the parenting questions and just getting used to being a first time parent. All right. But one of the questions that has to be a part of the equation is how do we continue to grow the relationship between the two partners sort of that the whole family started with? Because if you are not deliberate about that relationship, if you're only deliberate in your parenting, but not deliberate about that relationship, it is very, very easy for that relationship to deteriorate. And so you ask the question, any tips on maintaining a healthy and happy relationship? Yeah, first of all, each of you should be doing your own personal work. Daily meditation is a good one. Journaling is a good one. If you're in counseling, great. Or if you have, a, you know, maintaining your own personal friendships for your own individual selves. And taking time, yeah, date night's a great one. Um, if, you know, making that work and yes, without the child, if that's possible, if you have someone who can take the child even for a few hours, but it's, it's talking and it's listening. And part of the benefit of doing your own personal work of getting out your own feelings in your journaling or with your own therapist is so that when you're together, there's less of using the other person as a therapist. Not that that's all bad, but you need to do some of that work on your own so that when you can come together, it can still be about the couple, that you're still talking. Another thing that I would recommend 
is it becomes very easy for one or both parents to get their own personal needs met through the child. And I don't mean in any abusive or sick way. I don't mean it like that. I just mean it becomes very easy to make the child your life and make uh, you know it all about the child. And it also becomes very easy to allow that child to become a wedge. I mean, the metaphor of that is a child for year or years sleeping between the parents in the bed. I personally, and there's no right or wrong exact answer on this, but I personally am a fan of the the marital bed is the marital bed. And that even if you're not having sex, that maintaining some space that is sacred to the couple itself. I'm a big believer in that. And I'm also a big believer in in getting the child into their own bed and getting them used to sleeping in their own bed. Um, but every, every couple's different on that. There's no one hard and fast rule, but you've got to have some space in the relationship. You have to be deliberate about maintaining space, maintaining communication and listening and time together and fun. It's just the two of you because that relationship can fray. All right. You have to be deliberate, just like you have to be deliberate in your parenting. You have to be deliberate in, uh, the uh, maintaining and building of the relationship between the couple itself. All right, here we go. How do I let go of my toxic family and stop trying to gain their acceptance? Well, you're wanting their acceptance. Uh, My question to you, Yoshi, would be roughly, how old are you? You're 25, you're 35, you're 20, you're 40. And at what point do you realize that you have a 20-year or a 40-year or a 35-year pattern of behavior in them? You have a 30-year pattern of behavior. Let's just say you're 30. You have a 30-year pattern of behavior that you are still expecting, hoping will change. The pattern of behavior of them not giving you the acceptance you want. But it's it's this, it's so A, it's realizing you have a pattern of behavior that you just don't believe. You know, there's that old saying, when people show you who they are, believe them. Well, they've been showing you for 30 years and yet you don't wanna believe it because you still want their acceptance so badly. And in large part, because you believe deep down that you can't be happy without their acceptance. You can't feel fulfilled without their acceptance. And the child comes out of the womb. Every child in life, all of us in life, are going through life trying to get our love cup filled. And so when that child isn't getting their love cup filled, they up the ante. What more do I need to do? I'll do everything. I'll be everything to you. And they begin experts at reading people, reading their parents. What does the parent want? What does the parent really need? What has gotten me praised in the past? Well, I'm gonna do that. And it's not even always a conscious thing, but the child is forever geared into the parent, geared into the external power source, the external love source figuring out what the hell do I got to do to get their love? And so you're still trying to get their love in the form of acceptance. You're totally geared into them and you're still not getting it. And you're wanting your love cup filled. But the mistaken notion is that you, like the child thinks, you still believe that you need that acceptance from them in order to feel fulfilled, in order to get your love cup filled. And what really fills it in the end is, is when we realize I need to do it myself. If they ever come around later and accept me, hey, God bless them, God bless you, whatever. But at some point, the pain of not getting it becomes so great that you decide, fuck this shit, and you start filling it yourself. That's what it takes to begin to uh, gain their acceptance and stop trying. And it's realizing they're not giving. They have the power, and you are giving them the power, and it's making you miserable that they're not giving you what you want. And at, at a certain point, what always triggers change is one thing, and that is pain. And your pain either has gotten bad enough or it hasn't gotten bad enough. And I'm not saying it isn't bad, but it can always get worse. And eventually it reaches a point, and everyone has a different pain threshold, but eventually it reaches a point 
where it sucks so bad, I just need to move on my, with my life. All right. How do I accept the fact that I may not end up having kids? I'm 37 and not close to settling down. Kristen, this is actually a great fucking question. This is one I get surprisingly a lot. I've had a lot of clients, friends, even some family members over the years asking that same question. You know, how do I accept the fact that I may not end up having kids? And you say you're 37 and not close to settling down. Well, I've seen different people attack in a different way, different ways. Um, I have an old friend um, who was going through the same thing at about your same age, and she's uh, early to mid-40s now, and she just sort of went on a rampage, super dating, super intent on, I got to find the man, I got to find the man, I got to have a kid, I got to have a kid, I got to find the man, I got to find the man. And all these relationships kept falling through. I mean, she was kind of super desperate and so on and so forth. She froze her, you know, her eggs so she could always do that as a backup later. Um, you ask the very sincere question, how do I accept the fact? You grieve it. Because what you're not, what you're struggling to accept is that is loss. The loss of an experience, the loss of a beautiful experience of having a child. And as with all beautiful experiences, as with all beautiful people that we grieve, the leaving of beautiful places, the ending of beautiful sections of life and careers is we grieve. And there's an emptiness. There's an emptiness from losing something that we always thought we wanted. And in your case, it's a child and you're 37. And the more you can let go of by grieving, Grieving enables us to let go. It opens our grip to something we've maybe held on tightly for so long to. By grieving, it, it loosens our grip. That, and we begin to let go of it more and more. And flushing it out in your journaling, in your counseling, or for those of you using the Sedona Method or using my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. These are all tools for getting and flushing out that pain. And the more you realize, or the more you let all of that out, the more you'll grow okay with and accepting of that it's okay. And we build a life of joy around other things. And in an odd way, and I know this is gonna sound fucking insane, but I, and I just had another client today reminding me of this very thing in his own life, that his sources of greatest pain were also in odd upside down ways, later his sources of greatest joy and his greatest blessings. And whether or not you can see it right now, I believe that to be true even in this case, but you'll never get to that point without just grieving it, naming in your journaling work and in your counseling, what really is it that I'm losing here? Is it that I'm, I never get the experience of having a child? Is it I don't get the experience of being a mom? Is it that I don't get the experience of having a family the way I always envisioned it? And you need to grieve all of those things and just keep flushing it out. That's how you adjust to answer your question. That's how you accept the fact that you may not end up having kids. Next question. How do you fill your own love cup? How do you fill your own love cup? Well, um, <laughs> I taught, the whole book is dedicated towards that. The, you know, uh, there's a hole in my love cup. But you really can't fill your love cup until you repair the situation that created a broken love cup and a love cup with a hole in it or a love cup that doesn't have any sources of love pouring love into it. But you, so you begin by healing it, healing that love cup, repairing that love cup. And there are steps for doing that. But then it's also part of what it is, it's beginning to tune into your own voice. 
What happens uh, in life is that we are taught at a young age, not everyone, but a great many people are taught at a young age that their voice doesn't matter, their feelings don't matter, their wants don't matter. And so they basically take their own voice and they stuff it down deep inside and they become whoever they got to become in order to win the affection of, the praise of, uh, the external power sources are at the very least avoid the criticism of them. So they become a fake version of themselves. Well, they can no longer hear their own voice. Now they're just being whoever they have to be in response to the power sources so that they can get some love poured into their love cup. So you begin to feel heal your own love cup and fill your own love cup by getting out all those voices that said you need to be this other person and getting out all the pain that went with it. And then by beginning to hear your own voice, and the more you honor your own voice and take actions consistent with the belief that I matter, my voice matters, my feelings matter, my wants matter, my hurts matter, my needs matter. The more you take actions consistent with that, the more you are engaged in the act of filling your own love cup. But it's a multi-step process. And again, that's what I just walk you through. I hold your hand through uh, in the book. There's a hole in my love cup. All right. Next question. There are alternatives to having your own biological kids. There are indeed. Um, when I was answering the question previously of uh, someone asking, how do I let go of not having kids of my own, rather than uh, bringing, answering ways of sort of teaching her other things she can do to have kids, which I would assume pretty much any person knows, I uh, addressed the question directly. I answered the question she was asking. And the question she was asking was, how do I deal with uh, you know, letting go of that. So I just sort of took her at face value, um, assuming that she would know that she could, um, you know, adopt and that sort of thing. Next question. What do you do when you find out your mother gave you the weight to carry that wasn't yours to bear? Well, <laughs> that's about the moment we enter adulthood, real adulthood, more authenticity, but also beginning to see life through adult eyes. We begin to see our parents that, and this isn't for everybody, but a lot of times people see that their parents weren't always on the up and up or that the parents were getting their own needs met at the expense of the child, or that the parent was using the child or manipulating the child. You ask the question, what do you do when you find out your mother gave you the weight to carry that wasn't yours to bear? Well, I have to believe that it, to have that realization, it comes loaded with a lot of emotion, a lot of feeling, not the least of which is anger, potentially rage. Wait, you dumped that shit on me? That wasn't my fucking load to carry. You, Why the fuck did you dump that on me? That is so not right. That is so wrong. And it's very easy if you're still wanting something, love, approval, acceptance, acknowledgement of your pain, apology, if you're still wanting something from a parent, it's very easy to overlook that the pain the parent caused. Oh, it wasn't that bad. Oh, she was doing her best. But by doing that, you're minimizing the pain that that seven-year-old or that 12-year-old or that 14-year-old felt. Well, you're never gonna heal yourself if you minimize the very pain that's inside of you. You have to see the pain for what it is. You have to see what was done to you through the eyes of that 10-year-old. You have to allow yourselves to feel it. But so often when people are watching the film of their life, they're watching the adults and they're understanding, or, oh, I forgive or whatever. Forgiveness isn't the point. The point is healing that kid. And the only way you can fully feel it is to fully look at and acknowledge for the first time in your life what that child actually felt and allowing it to come up and allowing it to come out. The anger, potentially the hatred, the sadness, potentially the grief. You have to allow all of that. You have to stop and allow all of that out of you and just keep flushing it out. You ask, what do I do? 
you flush out all the pain. If you choose to confront or have a conversation with your mother over, over it, that's fine. That's neither here nor there. You don't need that conversation or that confrontation in order to heal. You can heal without it. Some people choose to do that conversation. That's just fine. But you don't have to have that conversation. What you do need to do is get out all of your authentic feelings. But you need to be real. And you can't be holding back. I had a client just this week who was saying, you know, who discovered that um, she had extremely strong feelings towards each of her parents for the shit they put her through. But she could not bring herself to say, though she eventually did bring herself to say, I fucking hate them for what they did to me. And to which I followed with, how does it feel to even say that? She says, I feel so guilty. I said, why do you feel guilty? You don't even have a relationship with your parents right now. She said, I feel guilty, I guess, because my whole life I've been geared to only care about their feelings. So me being authentic about my feelings goes against the family myth system, goes against the whole belief system that it's all about them. And I feel guilty, like I'm still supposed to be protecting their feelings and mine don't fucking matter and it's horrible. And I no longer, or I no more say those words, Sven, than I realize how crazy it is that I'm still protecting their feelings at the expense of my own. I said, it sounds like that has changed. She says, you're goddamn right that has to change. So what do you do when you find out your mother gave you the weight to carry that wasn't yours to bear? Get out all the feelings that you feel. And if you want to have that conversation with your mom, have that conversation with your mom. Just have the courage to be honest and be real and be bold and to stand up yourself. Because if she's been minimizing your feelings your entire life, it's reasonable to assume she's going to minimize them again if you choose to confront her. All right. Should one cut ties with their abusers, i.e. parents, or is there room to heal and accept them still? Tilly, that's a great question, but it's in the end, it's a question only you can answer for what's right for you. Every single situation of you know abusers or bad situations, every single one is on a case-by-case basis, on an individual basis. So you ask the question, should I cut ties with my abusers, i.e. my parents, or is there room to heal and accept them still? The mere fact that you say, is there room to heal and accept them still, indicates that a part of you still wants to, that uh, relationship to heal, and you want to accept them, which seems to imply, and I could be off on this, it seems to imply that you're still wanting something from them. You're wanting something with them, the relationship, I'm willing to bet, because you want something from them. And if that be true, let's just indulge that thought for a minute. If you are still wanting something from them, what is it you're wanting? Is it their love? Is it their approval? Is it their acceptance? Their acknowledgement of the pain they cause you? Is it their apology? What is it you're still wanting? Can you write it out? Can you articulate in one sentence or less what you're still wanting from your parents? Because you're asking, it sounds like you're cut. You're, you, you, should I cut my ties with my parents? It seems to imply you don't want to. That you want to keep it, and that usually means they have something you want, which sort of leads to the question, why don't you have it yet? Why haven't they given it? Which means they're either withholding it or they don't know you want it. Have you made your needs known? Um, but before engaging in ties with uh, someone who's abused you in the past, if you choose to engage in a relationship with someone who has hurt you in the past, regardless of the type of relationship, the wisest thing to do is just take it slow because they have to prove themselves at every point of the way. Why? Because you've got to create a space that is safe for you. And they've got to be held accountable. And you need to watch them. Are they taking accountability for the shit they've done? And if they're not, then why the hell would you want a relationship with them? Because they're going to hurt you again. They don't take re- accountability for what they've done. 
So if you're choosing to get back into a relationship with someone who has abused you, your parents, take it slow and you need to go in strong. Don't go in weak because they will hurt you again. Now, let's take a quick break. I'll be right back with more Badass Counseling. My best friend made me listen to some podcast, said it had blown her away. So we listened to a lightning round of the Badass Counseling show together. All I can say is, wow, first podcast I had ever listened to. Now it's my addiction. If you haven't done it yet, you need to subscribe to the Badass Counseling show. What's the badass got next? We are back with a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. This episode is airing all throughout the world. It's Our lightning rounds come out on Sunday at 12.01 a.m. every Sunday, and the counseling shows come out on Thursdays at 12.01 a.m., and we thank everyone who's tuned in. It's just great. All right, next question. Is it wrong to put your spouse before your children? What is the right approach? You know, that's a great question. And it's one that, in a way, wise couples struggle with. In part because, first of all, there's no constant thing where it's always true that I'm always putting my child above my spouse. Not a good idea. Not a good recipe for a long-term successful divorce to always put you know, the children in front of the marriage, not a good idea. Why? Because that thing will wither on the vine. And thing, I mean marriage. But on the other hand, it's not good to always put your spouse before your children. Why? Because there are times when the children really need love. And and part of your primary job is to maintain that family, but also to pour love into the children's love cup. But you only are able to pour love into the child's love cup or the love cups of the children. If you're constantly replenishing your own love cup, you can't pour from an empty cup. Otherwise, you'll start using those children to get your own needs met. So it's this ongoing sort of wrestling with uh, meeting each of our needs, the needs of me as an individual, you as an individual, the meeting of the needs of our children, the meeting of the needs of the marriage. I can tell you that my parents raised six children, and uh, I have wonderful siblings, really just great great fucking people that I'm so blessed to, you know, consider family. And uh, both of our parents passed away in the, both mom and dad passed away uh, just in the last few years, two, three years in their nineties. And I can tell you that mom and dad spent a lot of time alone. Mom and dad spent, even during the teen years and the early years, they loved their gardens and that was regenerative for them. Dad used to like to take his bike rides Um, They used to do things with um, their siblings and so forth, sort of date nights, or uh, they didn't have a regular date night. But for them, the things they enjoyed doing together was gardening. They'd grown up on farms during the Depression and World War II, and so they took time for themselves and each other. Yet I don't ever feel like in my entire life my parents weren't there for me, ever. And I can't speak for my siblings, but I got to believe it's somewhat in the ballpark. And so it's really this constant oscillation between meeting the needs of the marriage, meeting the needs of these individuals, and meeting the needs of the children as well. And it's just, it's not never one thing that's tackled once and for all. All right, next question. Um, this is great. Are you the male version of Dr. Laura? No. First of all, I'm not a psychologist. I am a soul counselor. I have a counseling practice in Manhattan, New York City, and Fairfield County, Connecticut. 
Um, I do soul counseling and corporate executive counseling. And uh, no, but I'm also not a male version of Dr. Laura because she's smarter than I am. Uh, and she was brilliant and so forth. I'm just, uh, you know, sort of a meathead uh, doing my best to help people in whatever ways I can. But my gift is going very, very deep and moving very, very quickly. And I tend to swear a lot more than pretty much any therapist you've ever had before, just because that's how I talk. Miss Jenny, 75 asks, I listen to your pod or says, I listen to your podcast while working out. I can't believe there's anything motivating about this um, other than when is that fucker going to shut up? And then you, that just makes you angry and then you lift heavier weight. But I'm, I'm flattered. Thank you very much. I tend to listen to, you know, heavy metal and rap and so forth when I work out. But fair enough. If it helps you work out, God bless you. Push harder. Push harder. Come on. All right. Uh, here we go. How do you let go of someone who broke your heart when you're alone in the world? Ah, oh, boy, that's a good one. And you know what? You know what I like about that question is in a way, it opens you up to, it sort of shows you what one of your potential weaknesses is or one of the potential areas where you could get yourself into a problem in a relationship. And that is if you feel alone in the world, it would be very easy to hold on to a relationship or to give up a lot in a relationship because I can't bear the thought of being alone if you're not here. So I have to give up more and more. I'll do more and more for you. So then you begin to create an inequitable relationship where you're giving far more than you're getting. If you're afraid of being alone, you're gonna go out of your way to try to do everything you can to keep this person. Does that make sense? But that wasn't your question. You asked, how do you let go of someone who broke your heart when you're alone in the world? Well, the, the simple answer of how do you let go of someone is you guys have heard me say it before, you hold on tighter. You hold on because you're holding on to someone and you're asking, well, how do I let go? You don't let go by trying to force yourself to let go. You hold on tighter. And what that means is, I, what I recommend is you watch the movies that you two used to love to watch together. You walk in the parks that you used to love to walk in. You journal about them and all of your feelings and you write them letters that you don't send to them, don't send to them, and you flush out all of your feelings of love. You go to your favorite restaurant every now and then. In other words, you begin to um, uh, exorcise the sort of demons or the memories attached to that particular park or that favorite skating rink, or that favorite restaurant, or that favorite bagel shop, or we used to just like to go walk through the mall as a low-cost date, or, you know, whatever it would be. You know, we used to go and, and watch, love to watch the Little League baseball games, even though we didn't have a kid together. We just thought it was fun. And holler and root for the teams. Whatever it was you did together, go do those things. And the more you do them on your own, yes, it's going to hurt at first, and it's going to bring up the tears and the sadness and missing him or missing her, but the more you do it, the less that's going to happen. You getting those tears to come up is good because you're flushing out the pain. You going into those places and having those memories is good because the more you allow those memories, merely allowing yourself to have the memories, decharges the emotional charge attached to the memory. That's what's keeping you holding on. But as you admit, the other thing that's keeping you holding on is the terror of being alone in the world. Now, you've got an ex. In other words, this person already broke your heart, so you're already alone. And so what that you say, how do I let go of someone who broke my heart when you're alone in the world? The mere fact that you're holding on when they've broken your heart, in other words, they've moved on, you're holding on inside of your heart. So in other words, it's not that I actually have the person because they've moved on. All I have is the person I'm holding on to inside of me. And isn't it interesting by holding on the person inside of me makes me feel less alone in the world. 
And it's tragically beautiful. It's poetic. That I don't have the person anymore, but if I keep holding on to them, I feel less alone. That's such a beautiful thought, isn't it? Wow, I love that. But in the end, we have to face the aloneness because until we can face the aloneness and be okay with the aloneness, it's going to always revert to what I was talking about before, that when you're in the relationships, you're gonna give up too much, you're gonna sacrifice too much, you're gonna allow yourself to be compromised or mistreated and you're because you forever fear them leaving. So what you really need to do is keep flushing out all of those feelings and you need to keep flushing out all of the fears and go into the fears. And you begin need to begin to create a life alone so that you're no longer afraid of it. And I know that sounds like insanity, madness to a lot of people, but if you look at the comments on uh, this feed or if you look at the comments on the videos that I post and, and so forth, you'll read that the people who finally grew okay, that dealt with it, sat in the pain and flushed it out and grew uh, accustomed to being alone and built a life that they enjoyed, they began to enjoy the aloneness more and more. Well, if you actually enjoy the aloneness and don't fear it, then you're walking into any new relationship from a position of power rather than a position of weakness. I need this relationship so I don't feel alone. I need it, I need it, I need it. Or I'd love to have a relationship, but if it doesn't work out, that's okay. I got a great life. So that means you're less willing to put up with shit, less willing to sell the farm, give up the farm in order to keep the relationship. All right, next question. This is great. Mandy asks, how can my ex move on with so many different girls so quick? That's a great question. Um, I address this, uh, if you ever want to, go on to my TikTok uh, page. And one of the ones, one of the TikToks, I believe I have it pinned. It's on uh, breakup from a narcissist. And um, first of all, as I mentioned in the video, I don't really use the term narcissist. I use the term extreme taker uh, just because I don't like to get into that whole overused terminology. Um, but break up from a narcissist. Go back and watch that if you get a chance. And if it's not pinned, find it in the, um, in the album that is labeled narcissist, okay? And I just use that label because it's so much easier. Anyway, how can my ex move on with so many different girls so quick? They move on because they can't bear the thought of not moving on. In other words, there's something that they get from moving on to the next person and the next person and the next person. There's some need that is being met that they have to do it. Well, it makes you wonder, what's the need being met? If we're all going through love, trying to get our love cup filled, this person can't bear to be alone without someone filling their love cup. They either feel alone, as my uh, the last question was sort of brought up, or they're just constantly needing to feel loved. They don't love themselves enough such that they're constantly needing to jump into the next relationship. I need somebody to pour love into my love cup. I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. In other words, there's a hole in the bottom of that love cup, which is why I titled the book, There's All in My Love Cup. Because no matter how much love they get poured in from any given person, it's never enough. I need more, I need more, I need the next one, I need the next one. They can't bear to sit still. They can't bear to go down into their pain and actually heal from it. They can't allow themselves to feel the grief that they felt in leaving you, Mandy. You ask the question, how can my ex move on with so many different girls so quick? They move on because they have to, because they're terrified of not having the next fix. The next fix, it's a drug. Whereas you're being the smart one. You're sitting in it. You're allowing your pain to come up. You're grieving the loss of this relationship. You're the smart one. Long term, why? Because you're healing your shit. If you don't heal the shit, you're just dragging it into the next relationship. 
So your ex, Mandy, moving on to so many different fucking relationships is just carrying their own shit into the next one, into the next one, and more and more accumulates. Do you ever really think that person's going to have a fucking quality relationship considering all this shit they're dragging with them? No, they may have the appearance of happy, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have a quality relationship. Why? Because they're not addressing their shit. They're not healing. They're just saying, I need you to give me a fix. I need a fix. I need a fix of love. Come on, give me more love. It's all about them. So trust me when I tell you, Mandy, you're doing the right thing by not being so quick to jump into the next relationship. In fact, a great many therapists will tell you after you've gone through a hard loss of a relationship, take some time to be alone. Get used to being alone. Take time to heal the shit. All right, next question. Ex-husband says he loves me, but can't say what he loves about me and can ignore me like I'm nothing. Now, when I first read this in my head, when I'm just skimming, I read, husband says he loves me, but can't say what he loves about me and can ignore me like I'm nothing. But you're saying it's your ex-husband. Okay, so you wouldn't be putting this here, Adrian, unless this bothered you. Your ex-husband says he loves you, but he can't say what he loves about you and can ignore me like I'm nothing. And I'm not trying to be a dick when I ask you the question. Why does that bother you? The mere fact that you're writing this here, and, and again, I'm, I'm not dogging you for writing the question. It's a legit question. Love is just hard, all right? So I totally get it. I'm in no way disparaging you or your question. But what does it say that you're writing it here? It says it bothers you. It says you're wanting something from your ex-husband and you're not getting it, all right? He says he loves you, but he can't say what he loves about me. That implies pretty clearly, you want him to tell you what he loves about you. Why do you give a shit what your ex-husband <laughs> loves about you? Now, either it's you want him to love you again, and maybe if I can get him to say the things he loves about me, then he'll love me again and we can have a relationship again, or you're wanting some love from some source. Please, ex-husband, tell me I'm lovable. Please tell me what you love about. I just need someone to tell me I'm lovable. I, I'm not really seeing any other answer here. Either you're wanting him to love you again and be loving to hopefully, maybe we can resurrect the relationship, bring it back from the dead, roll the stone away, or, biblical reference, or, um, that was good, wasn't it, Rob? Or you're either wanting to resurrect the relationship or you're trying to get some need met through your ex-husband. And ex-husbands and ex-wives, by definition, no longer exist to meet your needs. Okay, and then you you go on to say, he doesn't tell me what he loves about me and he can ignore me like I'm nothing. Why does it bother you that an ex-lover ignores you? And I'm not saying that's bad, I get it, all right? I really do get it. But the mere fact that it bothers you that he ignores you says you're still wanting a need met. You're wanting love from him. You're wanting his attention. You're wanting him to see you. You're wanting something from him. And guess what? As long as he has something you want, as we started the show talking about, but in a different uh, realm of life, if somebody has something that you want, they have the power to make you miserable by withholding it. You're still wanting something from someone that you no longer have a relationship with. All right? He's probably telling you he loves you because you know what? In a lot of marriages, you're not in, or divorces, you're not in love with the person anymore. But yeah, I love her. I still love both my exes. They're good people. You know, I love them. God bless them. Wish them the best, that sort of thing. But I'm not in love with them. But, and so sure, it's easy for me to say what I love about him. Now, in my case, I could say what I love about him, you know, gregarious people, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but he can't or won't. And you're wanting something from him. You're wanting love from him. And it could be that he's sort of tacitly saying, stop, I don't exist to give you love anymore. I don't want to give you love anymore, all right? 
You need to get on with life and get that love met somewhere else. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily the nicest thing, but the bottom line is you're still wanting something from a person that you no longer have a relationship with. And it's time to meet your own love needs, find out what you love about yourself and begin the life based on those things. And there will be new people who will walk into your life who think you're wonderful just the way you are. Uh, but barking up the wrong tree of, of an ex-lover is not a good place to get your love needs met. Again, I'm not dogging you for that. We've all been there. I'm just saying you, you need to move on. Uh, and you'd move on by flushing out your pain and so forth. Um, this is great because it follows right on the heels of that last one. Jolanda says, well, what if it's your husband that says that? Says, I love you, but doesn't know what he, he just says, I just love you. And he doesn't know what. Well, okay, so you had to throw that wrinkle in there. Um, well, now in this case, it's a person you're in a relationship with who isn't meeting your needs, your love needs. You're wanting more. You're wanting to know what is lovable about you by your husband. And I would encourage you to press on that one. I would encourage you to potentially even get counseling. If this is a significant love need of yours that is not being met, I would recommend counseling because it doesn't go to happy places if you're needing more words of love given to you. And my question would be actually be, in what ways are you getting love from this person? And may, there may be not a lot. And my more specific question would be, what percent do you feel loved in this relationship, Jolanda? And what percent do you not feel loved? Is it 99% loved, 1% unloved? Or is it 60-40? Or is it 20-80? See, what, one of the things we have to track in relationships is not just how I feel today, but the general trajectory of the relationship. Is the stock trending up even though there are some dips? Or is the stock trending down? Or is it just flatlining? And so your husband not telling you what he loves about you, is this indicative or part of a greater context where you are not getting your love needs met? That's the question. I'm gonna take one more question. And then we are going to call it. All right, what do we got? Oh, this is great. I love this. We're going to end the Badass Counseling Show lightning round on this question, people. I love this one. My boyfriend and I recently got back together. He wants to search my phone, but... <laughs> dot, dot, dot. I'm going to read this as you got shit in your phone. You don't want him to see. And isn't it interesting that he wants to search your phone as if he senses there's some shit in there. You don't want him to see. All right. So if you guys were apart and you have shit in your phone, you don't want him to see. It means I'm just going to assume you did some shit while you guys were apart that he's not going to like. So you'd rather hide that from him, right? Because I'm betting if he saw what you did while you two were apart, mind you, apart, mind you, apart, he wouldn't like you anymore. He would get mad. You'd have to deal with the backlash. He might walk away. So you want to hide the truth, even though unless you guys had some terms for when you were apart, which I find very hard to believe, um, it's like, oh, we're going to be apart, but you can't sleep with anyone or you can't date anyone, which is just kind of silly. I mean, it doesn't sound like it was marriage. You said boyfriend. Um, it sounds like you don't want him to know the truth because you fear him getting mad or you fear losing him. But why not just live your truth if you were justified? So what you're fundamentally saying is he wants to look at my phone. Now, technically, you're not required to allow anyone into your phone. That's private. But isn't it interesting that he sniffs, he senses on his sonar 
that you have done something that might make him mad and you don't want to show him the phone because you know you have done something that would make him mad and potentially cause him to leave you. And so you are fundamentally basically debating whether or not to engage in a deception. Just, I'll bet right now you're saying there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Well, let me see your fucking phone if there's nothing. No, no, no. There's nothing there, right? That old saw, we've all had that fucking conversation. No, no, I didn't do anything. Yeah, you did. Fuck you. You know, Jesus Christ, how many, we've all had that fucking conversation. All right, but the bottom line is, is you got to ask yourself, at what point do you just start having honest relationships in life? Just tell the fucking truth. It's so much easier. Just put it out there. Yeah, I dated some guys. And beyond that, it's none of your goddamn business because hell, that's not even your business. But I'm going to tell you, you want the truth, here's the truth. And let the chips fall where they will. You want to know why, Tia? Because one of the things we learn as we age, if you're smart, is that honesty is just so much easier And if you lose the person, you lose the person. Then it's not the person anyway for you. You want someone you can just be straight up with where neither of you is lying to each other because it's such a fucking headache and the fucking bullshit games and the blah, blah, blah. Just shut the fuck up. Just tell me the truth and I'm going to tell you the truth and either it flows or it doesn't. And what you're saying right now is it's not flowing because you don't want him to see the truth about you and blah, blah. It's just bullshit games. Just tell the truth and let the chips fall where they will because that's what it means to have an honest, real adult relationship. But you don't want to be honest because you think it makes you look bad rather than just standing up, being you and living by your decisions. Well, fine humans, this has been another absolutely kick-ass episode of the Badass Counseling Show. I want to say on behalf of Rob, Rob, did you have a happy time today? I could not possibly be happier. Ah, I love that. And KC, she's jumping up and down in her seat. We're so happy. Thank you all for tuning in around the world. Please check out more episodes of the Badass Counseling Show. On behalf of us all, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Hey!